two incomparable t-shirts are on sale now. Total Party Kills Dragon and, of course, our number one draft pick, a hooded skeleton. Get your t-shirts by September 30th by going to theincomparable.com slash shirt. The Incomparable. Number 319. September 2016. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. Uh, We're going to talk about... uh, uh, It's actually kind of an old movie, but it's not old movie club. It is uh, by... I have to say, by request, this has been on the schedule for a little while. Um, It's 1979's Alien classic sci-fi horror movie directed by Ridley Scott, uh, starring Sigourney Weaver. Many other interesting actors in this movie, too. Um, We're doing this episode in part because it's an awesome, old, uh, scary sci-fi movie, and in part because... Anthony Johnston demanded it. Anthony, welcome. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello, Jason. That's not our system. I had I had your name right next to it for a long time, and I like okay, let's just yeah, let's 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 do it. It's, that's because I was listening. Oh God, what more than two years ago to another to another episode, an earlier episode of the show, and I wasn't even a podcaster at the time, and you and I had corresponded a little. And you mentioned that, oh, we'll have to do Alien sometime. And I immediately emailed you at 1 a.m. from Uh bed saying, if you ever do that, I would love to be on that episode. And so here we are. And the system works is what I'm saying. (laughs) The wheels of podcasting grind very slowly, but they do eventually reach this point. Also joining us to talk about Alien, Liz Miles. Hello. Hello. Is this like a regular episode? Yeah, it is. (gasps) Wow. No, it's not. It's not because no. you're on it. It's a, it's a very oh. special episode. <laughs> no. Because you're on it. Uh, it's on my list of like, that's my bucket list thing. I can take that off now. We I are changing have... lives in this episode is what I'm saying. <laughs> There's momentous things happening in this episode. Later we'll have the uh, the dog draft will be happening. Anyway, <laughs> Monty Ashley's also here. Hi, Monty. Uh, Snoopy. Oh, sorry. I mean, hello. Hello. So save that pick. That's a, that's a good pick, though. Save that pick. Erica Ensign also joins us. Hi. I do. <laughs> Did somebody just get married? That's weird. <laughs> that's strange. Uh, that's uh, that's like an episode of Babylon Five. People get married without knowing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steve Lutz, of course, is here because there's gross stuff. And uh, <laughs> when there's gross stuff in a movie, I think of Steve Lutz. Hi, Steve. You have my sympathies, Jason. For the, the in general, or uh, for thinking of you? Because I'm here. You know. <laughs> that you're here. Okay. For Steve's presence. I feel bad for you. Fair enough. This has been on the schedule for so long. It has. How I think long literally has since it? the start of the podcast, this has been on your list of things. I remember going to see Prometheus specifically because we were going to talk all the alien <laughs> Sucker. Yeah, that was back yeah. in the day when we thought we'd just cover an entire franchise in an hour. That was good yeah. times. In fact, the notes that I have have all four alien movies in them. Wow. From the time I watched them, whatever it was, three years ago when Prometheus was out. <laughs> so what about the Alien versus Predator franchise, Steve? Uh, that's not canon. <laughs> oh, Interesting. Dear. Let's not no, go let's there, not, No, no. That's a very, very dangerous place to don't go. Don't say the C word. Some of us don't even count Alien Cubed. No. <laughs> or the next one. Anyway, uh, Alien. So uh, Alien is a movie that I think we are all too young to say that we went in and saw the movie and were surprised at what happens in it. Is that accurate? Because I always knew this is the movie where somebody uh, has an alien come out of their chest. Spoilers for Alien, by the way. Spoilers for an almost 40-year-old movie. I definitely saw Spaceballs before I saw Alien. I think I did, too. I didn't. I saw Alien in the theater. Uh, I was seven at the time. (laughs) That seems irresponsible. 
see. Well, that that's when it was out. It's not like I could tell them delay the movie for another three years until it's appropriate for me. Not surprised, Steve. <laughs> not surprised one bit. Saw it in the theater with my sister, and uh, but I cannot honestly say that I was surprised because I had already I had a copy of. Uh, Alien, the illustrated story, I think it was called, which was basically uh, yes. the heavy metal uh, associated graphic novel. Written by Archie Goodwin, I think, wasn't it? I believe so. And it was very, very good. And it also included uh, s- several of the scenes that were not yet clipped from the script at the time that the uh, that the, the graphic novel was written. So right. me- it, was, it was a revelation when the DVDs and the Blu-rays came out, and I finally saw these scenes that I remember being in the uh, graphic novel that weren't in the movie. But yeah, the, uh, the, the chest burster thing was not a shock to me. Um, probably wouldn't have been that big a shock, <laughs> even if I had seen it sight unseen. I hadn't... I, I, it wasn't a surprise to me, but not because it had been spoiled by reading a comic or people telling me, but because I actually read the novelization by Alan Dean Foster before ah. I ever saw the movie. Uh, it's a really good novelization as well. It is. And it also featured those parts that were, you know, sort of subsequently cut out of the script, uh, which confused the hell out of me when I first did actually see oh. the movie. But yeah, I saw it on VHS first. And I, that was what first intrigued me about the uh, about the film was that the Alan Dean Foster novelization was on a shelf and the movie poster was the cover for it. And I thought there was something right. strangely intriguing about that that cover. That oh, it's a, it's a classic poster, isn't it? Classic sort of teaser Even though it, it does sort of diverge a lot from what actually happens in the movie. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, well, and the egg doesn't even look like the eggs in the movie. It's a, yeah, it's a hen right. egg or something, I think, isn't well, it? Well, it certainly doesn't uh, doesn't shoot green lightning out of the bottom <laughs> and hover that over never happens. Starfield. And even Ooh. the tagline on the poster, I believe, is, In space, no one can hear you scream. That's correct. But to quote the Mad Magazine parody of this movie... They make an awful lot of noise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember this as uh, as a thing in pop, pop culture, just literally aliens, the movie where that guy has his chest ripped open by an alien uh, and it bursts out. And I, I had not seen it. In fact, I read um, in Arthur C. Clarke's novel 2010, um, they want, there's a joke about how they stock alien on the ship's library when they're flying to Jupiter and somebody watches it and says, who put this on here? <laughs> These people in the spaceship. <laughs> and, and at that point I still hadn't seen it, but I knew what they were getting at. And I didn't, I probably saw it not too long after sometime in the late eighties. But so for me, it was all about that one scene and not really knowing anything else about it. I mean, and then knowing that it was became a franchise, I guess is the other thing because then aliens came out and was a big hit too. And and then all of the other things happen. But I really didn't catch up with the Alien franchise until the, yeah, like the late 80s, I think. Uh, so it was already a franchise when you... I think so, right? When did Aliens Alien. come out, right? Aliens, 86. I, yeah. I'm pretty sure yeah. I saw Aliens first and then went back to see Alien. Wow. Oh, wow. I might have as well. I know for sure, like Monty, I saw Spaceballs first. And the first time I saw Spaceballs, I think it was just on VHS and it was with my parents, who are big geeks. And they actually had to explain the chest... Sorry, spoilers for Spaceballs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they had to explain the uh, the chestburster scene in Spaceballs to me because I just... I didn't didn't really get it because I I didn't really know about the, the zeitgeist of, of science fiction horror movies at the time so they had to they had to be like oh no it's and it's the same guy from that from this movie where this happened so yeah thanks mom and dad yeah I had also had I had family disapproval when I was I must have been 10 or 11 
And my sister and I used to go and stay at our grandparents during the summer holidays and often our youngest uncle, who's only a few years older than us, and our cousins were there as well. And they were just horrified to learn that we hadn't seen Alien or Aliens or any had any opinion about Alien. So one weekend we got to watch all three movies, which was okay. Well, no, it wasn't okay. It was really weird and scary, <laughs> most of it. And it was probably worse for my sister, who was really not good with, like, the witches, Roldell's The Witches movie, that scared the crap out of her. And that was presumably meant for children. Yeah, so the obvious next step is alien. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't coping very well with this. But it was helped by the constant commentary. So the chessboard scene wasn't exactly a surprise when you've got your uncle going, wait for it, wait for it, oh. wait for it. What's going to happen now to John Hurt? Watch John Hurt. And you're like, yeah, okay, okay. Could, could we maybe just all just chill, relax? enjoy the tension and the atmosphere instead of you telling me fact after fact that I don't know. I mean, he was talking, I was told, oh, and this is Tom Skerritt. And everyone was really shocked about how he was killed. And I'm like, I have no idea who Tom Skerritt is. Why are you telling me this? I still don't know who Tom Skerritt is. Yeah, see, by the time I saw this, I'd already seen Top Gun, so I knew exactly who Tom Skerritt was. <laughs> Part of the other reason that people were so shocked was because, of course, he's, you know, the heroic male, mm-hmm. macho-looking captain. And, uh, you know, that in itself was just quite a surprise at the time i was 12 13 when i saw this uh i know i can't have been older than 13 because i definitely saw it before aliens came out in 86 um and i had a friend who was absolutely obsessed with this movie i mean to like obsessed with this with geiger just everything and i became a little obsessed but nowhere near on the level of <laughs> that he was and he was also a really good artist so he would literally spend all day like drawing aliens and scenes from the movie and he had all the paraphernalia and it was just crazy so drawing giger art on your peachy folder is a good way to get right. to the principal's <laughs> yeah, office yeah yeah <laughs> so uh, yeah I, I saw this movie a lot when i was you know quite young um but i don't know i i think it's one of those things that uh it's another of those movies where there's so much that actually isn't on screen that apart from the chest bursting scene, there's not actually that much in it sort of physically gore wise that is unsuitable for kids. It's just that it's so mm. tense and scary and disturbing. Yep. Yeah, it is not very bloody at all. It's really not apart from the chest burster. Yeah. <laughs> Except for that one scene where everybody gets covered. In blood. <laughs> <It's> covered. <laughs> right. Apart from that. But that's 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 really the sole scene that yeah. that that's. Particularly Which is another reason it's so shocking. Right. Uh, Parker gets carried off, um, you know, and we don't see what really what happens to him. Uh, Dallas, he gets grabbed at and you don't see anything that happens to him because he was originally destined to be a a future host for an alien. Um, And Lambert and Parker, we just sort of see from the distance and there's blood dripping down, but it's not like you see viscera. It's not even in focus. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a, a a really quick shot that uh, if you pause it, you can see what happens when the alien's little extended uh, teeth come out and bite at uh, Parker's head. But that's about it. I mean, that's <sighs> it's it's very low key in terms yeah. of gore. It's like a slasher movie, but the line item for fake blood instead went for KY jelly. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, so this is what I want to mention is is that. I, this is a movie with lots of sci-fi trappings that are very interesting. I think that it it owes a lot. I kept I kept thinking as I watched it, as most 1970s sci-fi movies do, it owes, 
owes a huge debt to 2001, but it is a horror movie where everybody gets picked off one by one. I think at its core, um, like Steve was listing the de- ways everybody dies, everybody dies one by one yep. until only Sigourney Weaver is left. It is a horror movie in that way. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I think is fascinating about it is that it is... It is just a horror movie set in a sci-fi world, but it is unabashedly, you know, a slasher movie where the slasher is not a a, a phantasm or a madman, but a killer alien. But otherwise, it's just a, you know, it's a it's a slasher movie. Yeah, yeah actually, I actually uh, I took a class in college called Film Styles and Genre with. Uh, David Boardwell, the American film theorist and, and historian, and mm-hmm. the every every semester he would do a different genre, and I I lucked out and got horror for the genre or for the uh, the semester I happened to be doing it. And Alien, I think, was one of the uh, one of the first things that we actually watched and talked about uh, for that class. So I have just sort of always seen it as a horror movie because I know I had seen it before that, but I had seen Aliens so many more times, and that of course is not a horror movie; that's an action no. movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Right, so my right. memories, my memories of Alien are really just oh, abidingly paying attention to the horror elements because that is that's sort of how I I really paid attention to it the first time I dug into the film. Actually, the nastiest death by far is has got to be Ash, and mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and and the only reason I think that even would have passed muster as an R rating is because he's squirting milky fluid instead right. of blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's pretty. It's pretty foul if you watch it in the context of him being a human. You know. I think one of the reasons that this movie was has become so influential is because of that combination of genres. I mean, yes, it is a horror movie, but it's a really good horror movie, yeah. and because the sci-fi is a setting rather than the sort of driver in the sense of what we think of as hard sci-fi, and also because it does such a good job of that kind of working class dirty sci-fi aesthetic uh, you know that you also find in things like star wars but obviously in very different context there because the sci-fi is a setting it doesn't require uh sort of well frankly geek or nerd leanings in order to appreciate the horror movie aspect of it and you know both of those genres are so uh maligned as schlocky so many so often uh and yet this is regarded as a classic well in 1979 that was a pretty valid complaint to be oh honest. sure sure but then along came this and suddenly this was winning awards uh i mean it literally won an academy award i mean okay it was for effects but you know that's incredible <laughs> i like to compare it to 2001 for its aesthetic which is the polar opposite of 2001's gleaming antiseptic uh-huh. Stanley Kubrick style, whereas this is, even before you see any people, it's a spaceship that people live in. It's grungy. Even more than Star Wars's lived-in universe, this is a working-class science fiction world, which I just love so much. It's not campy. It's not Gurns back in. It's everything looks as if it's used and as if you could just sort of walk into it and start living in that world. I agree. It's actually, we talked about this in our episode about the original um, Ghostbusters movie, but I, I said, I think one of the things about it, and from 2016, you look at the them uh, smoking on a, on a spaceship and you're like, oh, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> yeah. so many levels do you guys have? But it yeah. is a, I will also read that as I do in Ghostbusters as it is also a signal of like, these are real people. These are like working class people. They are, they're doing a job. I think, I think uh, I enjoy Yafit Kodo's performance since he's like, I'm just, a, I'm just working here, man. <laughs> right. 
right? I think it's really good. I just want my money. Yeah, their banter over their first breakfast feels really like a, a an organic conversation. Yeah, yeah, I mean these are these are like uh, space garbage men. R- right. Basically. Well, the, the first conversation they have is about money. Yeah, yeah right. They're talking about their bonuses. That's what they're worried about. It's yeah. really. They're not talking about how amazing it. it is that they've just woken up from suspended animation. <laughs> that's, one, that's not even mentioned, you know. Or they're not amazed that, you know, they're out in space. There might be a new world out there, new life, new civilizations. It's like an antithesis of the Star Trek optimism. Yeah, no, this mission's over. We got to get home and get paid. Yeah. What do you mean we're, we're delayed? We don't want to be delayed. Yeah. This isn't a Star Trek universe where we've evolved past money, man. <laughs> no, yeah. no, hell we no. want money. Pay me. <laughs> hey, everybody, come see The Incomparable perform live at the Now Hear This podcast festival taking place October 28th through the 30th in Anaheim, California. It's a three-day festival of your favorite podcasts, things like WTF with Mark Marin, Pop Culture Happy Hour, Comedy Bang Bang, Hello from the Magic Tavern is going to be there. I'm very excited about that. You don't want to miss it. We will be performing on Saturday, so if you can only make it for one day, make sure it is Saturday, October the 29th, or you will miss out on our show. Go to nowhearthisfest.com, now H-E-A-R, thisfest.com, to get tickets and information about the full lineup, hotels, and a whole lot more. Use offer code INCOMPARABLE when you buy tickets, and you'll save 25% off general admission, and you'll let them know that The Incomparable sent you. That's nowhearthisfest.com, offer code INCOMPARABLE. I hope to see you there on Saturday, October 29th. So when I mentioned 2001, uh, the way I view it is, yeah, this is this is a dirty world in a way that, that 2001 isn't, but but it, it is the pacing of it, the way space is treated. I felt like very 2001. It is mm. slow mm. and deliberate and quiet, especially at the beginning, which serves the horror movie part of this movie very well, right? That it that it, it's using. You know, you could argue, I guess, that 2001 is also sort of horrific in what eventually happens, but it's it's a lot of things, and we're not here to talk about 2001. That, that's another episode that we probably never will do, but it would be 10 hours long <laughs> if we did it. Um, but it's it's uh, that slow pace and... Um, and all of that, I think, works to the benefit of the horror stuff. But but I definitely felt like the first ch- – we haven't really even kind of broken down the plot of the movie here. But that first chunk when they're on the planet especially um, and they're, they, you know, they're landing and they get out and all that, not only is, I think, the science questionable in there, uh, but uh, – <laughs> which, okay, it's fine, whatever. But it just it, – it, it feels it, – it feels slow and and frustrating to uh, to me as a modern film viewer but also at the same time mm-hmm. really calls back to something like 2001 which was absolutely that it's like space is quiet and it's slow and these things are moving very yeah. slowly through silence and i did appreciate that part of it even though it's a very different feeling world yeah i want to talk a little bit about that pacing which when i rewatched this the first time 3 years ago when we were supposed to do this movie I, I made a note that, you know, as much as I love this movie, and this is not the fault of the movie in any way, but as much as I love the movie, I think it's a masterpiece. And I think that the effects and things still hold up very well. I agree. It mm-hmm. kind of doesn't work anymore. Um, you know, oh, not I because, so disagree. <laughs> not because everything seems dated, but because it takes so long to get going. And for me, remembering how amazing all of the sci-fi stuff and all the planetary stuff was as a kid... It doesn't bother me because it, to me, it just feels like a really good slow burn. But uh, I think most modern audiences watch this stuff in the beginning, and it's stuff that it, in 1979, you know, it was groundbreaking, and now it's stuff that we've seen a million times. 
I'm, I'm also going to be on the, the disagree side of this here, especially because we've got audiences now who will sit through a season of Game of Thrones where sod all happens for each episode. <laughs> they are they love the slow burn pace, which is great because yeah. I'm I'm completely on board with that. I love well, 60s and 70s. I, I can certainly see like genre audiences and people who who are prepared for that sort of a, a, a slow burn to appreciate it properly. But yeah. I um I I showed this to my daughter who's 13. Yeah, and, I showed it to mine, who's 14. Uh, yeah. My son, who's nine, was also in the room, and he spent the first hour like playing Roblox. He wasn't really paying attention. But she was so bored. She made it to the chestburster scene, because I insisted that she at least get to that. And, <laughs> and then I forced her to stick around until Parker got dispatched as well, because you at least need to see what pace or what sort of a, a trajectory the movie's going to be on. Come on, kids. Watch these people die horrifically. He's <laughs> just, yes, you must watch this. That's right. It's good oh. for you. It's good for the soul. But she was already she was already lost to me at that point. Now, the, the interesting thing is that my son, who who barely saw any of that first hour or so of the planetary exploration, he got interested right around the time the chestburster happened. Mm-hmm. And he closed up Roblox and he watched the last hour of the movie and really enjoyed it. But that first hour is so slow. And, uh, you know, I just I just think that that's it probably loses a lot of people who watch it. Cold. I used to think that, to be honest. But in the past 10 years or so, whenever I've rewatched it, I've loved the, the opening stuff more and more. And I think I know I don't I can't speak to people generally, but I know that for, that for me, it's because it really hits that sweet spot of space mystery with the space horror combination. And the, I, I just love the atmosphere of that, the, the claustrophobia bits, the gradual reveal, the tiny clues you get the hints to do the spaceship thing which is completely ruined now to think about it because of prometheus i can't watch when they they see the big giant people without thinking oh dear god that other movie which (laughs) in retrospect actually i wasn't too mad at prometheus before until i rewatched alien after it and then i got very angry (laughs) (laughs) i still haven't watched prometheus i can't bring myself to watch it it's interesting i kind of liked it I didn't hate it. As far as the slow burn stuff goes, I for me, I take it uh, sort of sequence by sequence. And some of it works and some of it, I think, doesn't. The entire opening where they're actually on the ship, I love it. I love that it has a chance to breathe because, like Liz says, you are discovering things in every every shot has something. You know, you get the human touch of the like the little drinking birds with one of them in motion and, and one of them not. and And all of that stuff, the conversations, everything is driving you towards something and giving you information about who these people are, what the world is like. And then you get the sequence of them landing on the planet where you're not really getting anything except this planet is inhospitable and this lander is very loud. Yes. So lots of alerts. I was really bored during that point because it was slow and wasn't giving us any information. I'm fine with slow as long as I'm getting something out of it. Can you imagine how long that little mechanical rooster has been dipping his beak in that glass of water? Eternally. (laughs) I wonder who engineered that thing. Erica, what I wrote down was I, I mean and i wrote down this way i feel like a modern science fiction movie would do some of that stuff at the very beginning better and and specifically more detail a little more mystery and yes a faster pace but i feel like that was the thing that struck me is is i just kind of uh, th- i could see how it could be a little more detailed that there was some time where kind of not a lot was happening and and i did feel to steve's point that you're meant to marvel at the scene that now seems a lot more pedestrian there are other parts of it that mm-hmm. i think are really great i'm not saying this whole movie would be made better if it was made 
made as a modern blockbuster. Good God, no, I'm not saying that. But I, I feel like I feel like there, there could have been a little more sci- sort of sci-fi detail to intrigue you at the beginning. Yeah. Um, that that is just not there because I think at the time they figured it was intriguing enough. We're a spaceship landing on an alien planet. What more do you need? Well, and you've got a room full of blinking lights. That's a computer. Yeah. You can you know ask questions. Soft landing. Soft, soft landing. Soft uh, landing. Those are the best yeah. sorts of computers. The more lights a computer has, mm. the better yeah. it is. And they're blinking and flashing and, and blinking too. and flashing. Why does that computer breathe? In context, <laughs> in 1979, it's not even that slow paced. Like a 1970s indie movie will take forever and not do anything. Sure. Like uh, Tulane Blacktop is my favorite example. Nothing happens in that movie, and I love it. Steve, you you mentioned the um, influence, and that's one of the points that I wanted really wanted to sort of bring up was. Think about, I mean, how influential this movie's been for a start, but also um, Blade Runner and, you know, the movie Ridley Scott made after this. He made this and Blade Runner in the space of three years, two of the most influential sci-fi movies, and in the case of alien horror movies, of all time. That's kind of amazing. You know, like almost every movie that's followed since in those genres has paid some kind of debt to either Alien or Blade Runner. It's astounding. Absolutely. Yes. And half of that yeah. I quite like. You may make terrible movies now. But <laughs> <laughs> I thought The Martian was very, very good. Yeah, I, I really uh, like The Martian. So. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen that. I haven't We're seen. not talking smack about 1492 Conquest of Paradise, are we? <laughs> but any of us should be so lucky to make even one thing half as good as, as any either of these movies. You know, they're just so influential. It's almost hard, unless you're old farts like us and you've lived through it it's almost hard to appreciate the sort of before and after alien and blade runner state of uh cinema sci-fi yeah no i don't want to suggest there's anything really wrong with the pacing in 1979 i think it's actually almost perfectly paced for the time it was made it's just it doesn't it doesn't really work i think for a lot of people in today's audiences i'll kick myself forever for this I, i did not uh, insist that we watch the movie in a darkened room oh. away from all the other distractions. Yeah, we did that. That was because... <laughs> That was because my daughter did not want to watch it in a darkened room away from the other distractions. She was a little, she had some trepidation about it. She's not watched a lot of horror movies. So in order to get her to watch it, we had to watch it during the day. And I think if if she had been locked in where she couldn't uh, pay attention to other stuff. I don't mean physically locked in. I'm not talking about clapping her in irons. Oh, it's amazing parenting tips you get from podcasts. Speaking of darkened rooms, though, actually, I did... Even though, obviously, I originally saw this on VHS, I have seen it uh, on the big screen because the local multiplex where I uh, lived in the early 90s did a double bill of Alien Aliens. It started at 9pm, so you can imagine what time we all rolled out of that um, and how we smelled. But the main (laughs) thing I remember was how much more powerful Alien particularly was on the big screen. Like, this was, by that point, I'd already seen the movie 50, 100 times. Um, But uh seeing it on the big screen was like seeing it for the first time all over again it was extraordinary there were a couple of scenes like for example where the alien reveal in the air ducts when they when he kills dallas mm-hmm. was i mean you know i knew it was coming and yet seeing it 30 foot high in a darkened room surrounded <laughs> by dolby surround sound scared the crap out of me that's such a beautiful shot it's fantastic yeah but there were a few shots like that where the impact of seeing them at the theatre, on the big screen, really made a difference. So, I mean, what are the chances anybody is still showing Alien 
uh, as a special showing on the big screen. But if anybody, if you ever get the chance to to see it on the big screen, do so because it really, really is extraordinary. That was why I was glad I got to watch it in college because we had, you know, it was a 35 millimeter print brought into the, you know, the, the big oh, awesome. room. It was great. As great as it is to see it in the theater, I've got to say the Blu-ray of these look fantastic. Mm. It really this does. Is, this, if I didn't already have Blu-ray, this, the uh, Alien, I guess it's the Alien Anthology they call the Blu-ray set. Quadrilogy. This, the quadrilogy, I think, is uh, DVDs or something. Oh, sorry. It's, You're right. It's different. Oh. Made up word. But it's, a, it's a magnificent set, and it's very well produced. But the, the thing that really blows me away is I spent years watching this on VHS in Pan and Scan. <laughs> yep. And uh, Pan and Scan misses so much of the detail on the fringes and so much of the framing. Uh, you know, you don't... I had forgotten having only seen it in the, in the theater once when I was seven, so it's unsurprising that I forgot. But... Um, but uh, those shots where they're approaching the derelict spaceship, in in pan and scan, they're boring as all hell, because you only get that tiny little that tiny little close up shot of them approaching the thing. When you see it in its full detail uh, on the Blu-ray, you really get the sense of how gigantic this thing is and how tiny the crew is in comparison, and it makes all the difference in the world. Those shots are all about scale and weird things with scale. That whole thing is like, this is much larger than it should be. The body is much larger than it should be. It's all like that, and you, you, you're right. You completely miss it if it's just cropped into the, into the little square. And it's gorgeous. I mean, the the re the re uh, whatever the remastering that they did on the picture itself. Yeah, it looks the great. original movie did not look that good by any stretch of the imagination. So let's go to the planetoid and talk about the the crash spaceship because this is one of these. I mean, we we don't have that many settings in this film. I mean, we're going to end up on the Nostromo and people are going to get picked up one by one. But we start with this spaceship and it's huge. And if they see it through the kind of fog and they, you know, Ash, can you see this? There's a spaceship crash. Uh, they. Find Find a dead alien in a chair. It's super weird. It's hard to understand even what you're seeing. It's so strange, and uh, and like we said, the scale of it is completely strange. And it's it's a it's a scene that that is a scene that I could watch over and over again because it's so weird and confusing and creepy. And I, I love that a movie is basically saying, "Figure, look at this. What do you think this looks like? Figure it out." Which is what it's what I feel like this scene. Is doing. It makes the title of the movie into an adjective rather than a noun. Looks like an H.R. Geiger painting. <laughs> Slightly huh. fewer penises than usual, but otherwise it's a Geiger painting. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I, there's so many reasons I love this scene. I love it because it's forcing you to empathize with the crew um, terribly for feeling what they're feeling as they're exploring it type thing. And, you know, that that I don't get that level of connection with a lot of movies. And uh, it's also, it's space horror in a way that's perfect for me because it means I can enjoy being scared whilst not being scared to leave the room afterwards because something's going to get me. It's that there's there's mm. enough of a disconnect. This is why I'm not a fan of slasher movies because it's like the, the world. But space horror, that's brilliant. Anything can happen in space horror because I'm never going to go in a rocket because I'd be too scared even if I could. So it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> well, this is exactly why I thought this would be a good introductory horror movie for the kids. Because uh, it's, like I said, it's it's light on the blood and it's entirely happening somewhere that looks completely unlike their daily environment. So they can disassociate from, from anything that yes. happens in the movie. Mm -hmm. as, as, a, as a child who's reasonably easily scared, um, that does help. <laughs> With the space jockey scene, talking about scale, this is where they use children 
in suits. Ah. Uh, when you see long shots, those are children wearing spacesuits walking around right. the set to make everything seem oh. bigger. So John Hurt decides, hey, I know what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to go down below in this weird thing and find a whole chamber full of things that look kind of like eggs. And there's things... And, 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 and it's actually one of the moments that I really love in this is when he looks at one, at the egg and there's like movement on the inside. Yeah. It's like, what's in there? Mm. It's so great. <laughs> Ridley Scott's hands, that's what's in there. <laughs> and it's lit up by Pink Floyd's lasers, apparently. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> that's how it works. I like, I like the fact that the eggs are sweating upwards. I've always thought that oh, was yeah. a pretty cool looking effect. <laughs> the thing that I like about it is is sort of the setup for this that, that makes me not annoyed with his choices because if this was a sort of a scientific crew that was supposed to be going out and investigating new worlds and new life and all that kind of stuff i would be super annoyed at somebody who just goes in by himself and starts poking at crap oh god don't see prometheus yeah. <laughs> this is a bunch of you know workaday folks who want to get home and get their money so then but they're doing what they're told to do just so that they can get out of here and this particular character has some genuine curiosity about this stuff so he does go in and start looking around and poking and and I, right. I don't have to be too annoyed at him because, you know, that's that's probably what he would do. Well, he's the one that's all excited. He's the one that's excited mm-hmm. about going mm-hmm. out. He's the one that volunteers. Yep. And everyone's like, why am I not surprised? Because he's clearly the guy who's into the whole, you know, exactly. exploring other world stuff. It's Kane who urges them to go on as well. When Lambert wants to go back, he's he's the one who's saying, no, we, we must go We have to keep on. going. Yeah. We have yeah. to go on. We've gotten this far. Time to take a break and tell you about one of our sponsors. This week's edition of The Incomparable brought to you in part by Audible. Dot com. If you love books, but find you just don't have time to read them, to sit down and read a book on paper or Kindle or anything like that, audible.com is the perfect solution. You can get audiobooks and listen to them while you're on the go, whether you're on your commute, at the gym, no matter where. There are audiobooks from leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers, all on Audible. The app is free. It works on pretty much any device you can think of. iPhones, iPads, Android and Windows Phone, Kindle Fire, 500 different MP3 players. And unlike a streaming or rental service with Audible, you own your books so you can access your books anytime and anywhere right from your favorite device. It's also got something called the Great Listen Guarantee. If you decide there's a book that you chose that you don't like, don't worry about it. Exchange it for another book if you're not happy with it. Anytime, no questions asked. Now, if you sign up for Audible, you could read a book like, let's say, The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison, which I liked a lot. That was my favorite book in the Nebula Awards this year. I'm now reading the sequel, The Obelisk Gate. Such a great series. So you can get that at audible.com. And just for listeners to The Incomparable, you can get a free 30-day trial for audible.com by going to audible.com slash Snell. That's where you need to go to start your free trial. Show your support for The Incomparable and get a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash Snell. Thank you to Audible for sponsoring The Incomparable. The eggs in this are so much more yucky than they are in later movies as well. Yeah. Like from Aliens onwards, they really sort of cleaned up and streamlined all the alien stuff, including the aliens themselves, and especially the eggs. Whereas these eggs are horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, leathery. <laughs> yeah. I love the shot when it opens and you see what looks like uncooked chicken on the top with veins. Oh, oh. It's, yeah. Yes, that's exactly it's what cow's I said. bladder or something, I think. Oh. Yeah. Oh, man. Awful. Yeah. And, uh, and so he gets a thing on his face. Oops. Who was expecting that? Nice job, dummy. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about pacing, by the way, uh, just here's some time code stuff for you. That happens at 34 minutes. 
Yep. Almost exactly half an hour later is the first kill. Uh-huh. Yep. And almost exactly half an hour after that is the Ash revelation. So the whole film is divided into 30-minute chunks. I would have loved to see this movie and not know it's a horror movie. Because if it's oh, called yeah. Alien and you have a half hour of just screwing around on a spaceship, you're thinking, all right, space movie. Where's the alien? <laughs> and then, yeah. oh my God, what has happened? <laughs> yes, if they had called this movie like Space Ice Haulers or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Ice Road Spacers, something like it, it seems like we're kind of going through the plot at this point, so I yeah. just wanted to, 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 to bring in how much I appreciate, having seen it a million times, how well they do the Ash plotline and how subtle the indications that he's not entirely human yes. kind of come mm-hmm. in as you go along. Like, uh, and how he's sort of subtly pushing them to go investigate, even though nobody really is that into it except for Kane. Like, uh, there's a point early on where they land and the ship has been damaged and Dallas is uh, like, well, we can't, I think it's actually Kane says, we can't go out in this because it's a, you know, it's nighttime and it's cold and the, the winds of space are blowing. Yeah. <laughs> and Ash helpfully <laughs> chimes in, well, Mother says the sun's coming up in 20 minutes. Ash is the one who also um, persuades Yafet Kato's character uh, that he should that they should investigate the beacon, remember, when they're... Right, uh, no when shares. Dallas is telling them all that, yeah, that we've had the SOS. And he's like, well, that's not in my contract. And right. Ash is the one who's like, actually, it is. Uh, and if you don't go, you lose all your shares. Right. Money. <laughs> and Ripley wants to go out and inform them that uh, it's a warning and not a, 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 a call for help. And he's the one who chimes in, well, there's not much point in going after him. By the time you get out there, they'll know whether it's a warning or not. So, you know, don't bother. Okay, I really have to go watch this again because all of this, I mean, I'm not exactly good at picking up on sort of plot hints, but this is all whoosh, never noticed. And then later, Ripley won't let them back in, which is 100% the correct thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely right. Why we right, have that yeah. rule? <laughs> and he just taps on the little opener. Go on in. Yeah. Uh, I think my favorite, uh, my favorite early bit like this is when he's getting ready to take his position at the console to watch the away team go out, he does this really weird little jog in place yeah, yeah. before he heads over yes. there. And it's, it seems completely unnatural. It's like he's got some sort of a glitch in his system and he's like, somehow by moving his, his bits around, he's like breaking rust or something. I think that's meant to be, I mean, I don't know, but I, I've always one thought that that's meant to be uh, a signal to us for later that there is something wrong with him, that he is malfunctioning. Because you're right, there's no... It's not like he's about to go on any kind of physical activity. There's no point to it whatsoever. I think that's one. this uh, is one of the things that this movie does very well to add this entire plot point about Ash and about the reason that this is all happening. And I, this is one of those cases where I think a modern movie would completely mess this up because they would a modern movie would say well we need to have all these reversals of about how they all got set up and they need to find out that this was all a setup from the beginning and it needs I, I just feel like a modern movie would really do a bad job of this because it would make they would make it more integral to the plot and and, and the fact is it's not necessary it, to have this happen it's it's cool that it happens we don't need a reason why uh, we have a movie where a spaceship lands on a planet and they get in, in infected with an alien and it kills them all but uh but it's a nice bit of uh, additional seasoning to the to the reason why it happens there was a conspiracy you know these people were set up and and you get the reveal with ash which is such a great sci-fi moment 
in a horror movie that it's great. I just, I, I feel like it is the, it is a perfect level of integration with the plot that uh, a modern movie would screw up because they try to do too much with it. This is why yeah. when I show this to, <laughs> this to people who already know about the chest burster scene, I'm not too bothered by that because the Ash reveal is so well yeah, done. So what just happened? There's still surprises. <laughs> because, the, I mean, he's spinning around and there's fluid shooting everywhere. And uh-huh. before you even have the time to really deal with that, Parker knocks his head off yeah. with an air tank of some kind. Yeah. It's a fire extinguisher or something, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and his head flies off and he's like doing the chicken with his head cut off thing with his hands. Yeah. It's great. They used the white fluid because red would look too much like blood, but that white fluid is really disturbing. It is. It is, yeah, right. it is. <laughs> Especially when it's like shooting out of his mouth while he's trying to talk it's and so great. bubbles being blown. That's so great though. I mean, that's, and that's where, that's, that's where you want to talk about mixing genres. I love that the science fiction aspect gets layered back in on, it's almost like we start with a base, base coat mm-hmm. of, of sci-fi and then we lay some horror on top of it. And then here we get the sci-fi on top of that again. It's like, whoa, what a but great. But it's still pretty mixture. horrible. It is. Oh, it is horrible, <laughs> but it's like sci-fi horrible. And that's, that, that's, this movie it's a nice layering of different sorts of horror as well because you've got you've got the alien and then you've got you the sense that their cooperation is not super great and then you've got scary android malfunctioning and trying to kill you as well as that it's it's t- sort of layers within the <laughs> leery bits i also love how when they uh, reconnect his head even though his insides look completely organic you know it's sort of like some weird sci-fi organic circuitry mm. but they still basically use jump leads to <laughs> yeah. power him up again <laughs> well, his insides look like mostly like tubes and boba for some reason yeah. which i've never really quite understood it's gross that's what that's the insides why. of people look like robot or not one of the things that i think most most interesting about the uh the special edition dvds that have the deleted scenes is you really get a sense of how well directed and edited this film was and and uh, and the ash uh, reveal, I think, is a perfect example of that because there was a an early scene. I forget if it actually was a deleted scene or if it was just something that got clipped out of the script. But there's an, a scene somewhere early on where Ripley and Lambert are discussing whether either of them has slept with Ash. Yeah, um, yeah. because you know you're on a long space trip, and basically it sounds like the the uh, the standard operating procedure is you just sleep around with whoever's on the crew just to keep yourself from dying of boredom. And they're both surprised. But not entirely surprised because Ash is kind of a weirdo that neither of them has actually slept with him, and uh, it's it's it would have been an interesting scene, but at the same time, I think it would have been too telegraphing. Right, that would have been too later. much of a clue. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that they clipped that out because, as much as I'd like to see that scene, and I think it adds an interesting sort of wrinkle to the life in space nature of the film, um, the fact that he took it out, I think, is 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 very telling as to how how much care was taken to really make that reveal work out. And the, the paranoia goes then through this whole franchise uh, forward, and I, I love that aspect of it. That that this is not this is not. <laughs> I just love it. It's not an accident that these people people were horribly killed. A corporation <laughs> decided to essentially not care if they got killed because they wanted to get this alien. That's basically the story. And uh, and again, it didn't need to happen that way, but that's that's what it is. And then we take the that sort of corporate malfeasance and people being not as important as profits. Talk about them talking about money in the beginning. In the end, this is this is a, a, another financial calculation that's being had that is exposing them to this horror. It's just, and then the, and it continues. That, again, is one of the most influential things in the movie. Like, 
you know, as someone who has worked on a lot of sci-fi and horror and sci-fi horror properties, let me tell you, oh, yeah. oh my goodness, <laughs> corporations looking for weaponized supernatural things and prepared to sacrifice <laughs> the search party. That's every video game, right? Such a cliche, <laughs> right, such a cliche by now. It's amazing. Oh. I think it's interesting that that whole storyline, the whole Ash thing, was not part of the script that Dan O'Bannon and Ron Shusett put together, but it was something that was suggested and then almost forced into the story by uh, David Geiler and Walter Hill. Hmm. And I, I don't think Dan O'Bannon was particularly fond of it, but uh, it was something that they thought was a great idea and they ins- insisted on it. And I think it's frankly one of the best things in the movie. Yeah, I think that was the right choice. Yeah, He still cashes the checks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. It just, put, it just puts another spin. It's another, it's another thing in the pot, right? It's just another thing that's happening. Like it's, yeah. like it's not just that a monster is killing people, but it's like, and somebody on the ship is setting it up t- so that that's okay because the bosses don't care. But I love the fact that there aren't like a bunch of scenes like a, of that makes it obvious that there's a mole on the crew. It's just something right. that suddenly appears yeah. when Ash's head flies off yeah. and milk is flying <laughs> everywhere. It's like, oh my God, what's going on here? It's when he tries to kill Ripley that it's really... Right, that's yeah, true. That's, that's the true. first real revelation is it's like, hang on a second. But that leads immediately into his right, head Right, that's one long scene. He, he tries yeah. to kill Ripley after we see the memo that says crew expendable. Yeah. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's true, true, yes. <laughs> you know, we talk about how well written and directed and edited and shot this movie is. It's also got a ridiculously incredible cast. Yep. yep. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. This movie was made 37 years ago, and every human actor in it had a great career, except for Yafet Koto. They're all still working in big properties today, and Yafet Koto's earned the right to take some time off if he wants. Like, you can't just have Harry Dean Stanton and John Hurt and Ian Holm standing around. This movie does. Eh, they're not that yeah. important. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it made a star out of Sigourney Weaver, you know, oh, yeah. of course. It did. So that, that's just, uh, let's, talk, let's talk about Sigourney Weaver. She is so great in this. We haven't talked about her a lot, partially because we've been listing victims. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, as the final girl, she doesn't qualify. Yep. You got your head fake, right, where she's just part of the crew. But, of course, she's the one who survives and, and, and Dallas is taken fairly quickly. And it is this. And she ends up being the one who makes everything happen in this in this movie and and it ends up being uh i don't know it it, it did make a star of her and you can watch it and you're like yep yeah i mean it totally makes sense that yeah of course ripley earns her survival it's not like she just happens to be the last one she was correct so often about a lot of times in horror movies it is just a random girl who survives and i really appreciate that ripley was smart and just yeah. barely smart enough to survive. Yeah. And I, I really liked how there wasn't anything incredibly like grand in her in what she chooses to do. It's just a lot of times she makes very small decisions, end up being the correct ones. And it's the accumulation of all of them together that allow her to survive rather than her having a grand revelation moment of, oh, and this is how I will save myself kind of thing. Set down the cat and back away. <laughs> Common sense decisions, yeah. Yeah. There's a lovely piece of misdirection as well, because Monty's right, for the last 15 minutes of the movie, she's the only actor on screen, yeah. you know, apart from the guy in the alien suit. She carries the whole rest of the movie. Um, but there is a lovely misdirection before that, where there's just her, Parker and Lambert left, and she goes off by herself looking for the cat, looking for Jones, and Parker and Lambert are paired up. And up right. until this point, the alien has only picked off lone people. Uh, so, you know, you naturally expect that she is going to be the one who buys it next. So that, yeah. of course, you know, she doesn't. She's busy triggering the third cat scare in the movie. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the movie does like literal cat scares. That's fair. <laughs> that's true. But I think that's a lovely reversal to sort of, you know, again, 
just kind of play with the audience's expectations. Although it is a little depressing that she sends the two of them off to collect coolant, which apparently they don't need because she takes none of it with her onto the uh, shuttle. <laughs> right. I wish I would have been able to see this not knowing. I mean, we already talked about the chestburster scene, which, of course, I, I knew. But I also didn't uh, didn't ever see it without knowing that Sigourney Weaver was going to survive because, you know, she went on to make the second movie. So I I hadn't even put that together that the movie is playing with your expectations when she goes off by herself because my expectations were always just that she would survive. So, right. yay, good job, filmmakers. <laughs> You're even better than I thought. <laughs> One of the things I really like is the double back that happens where – so the idea is, okay, there's only three of us left we're going to self-destruct and we're going to get out uh in the shuttle um and that doesn't go well <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> but um ripley uh starts to self-destruct which is cool nice little bit of uh of uh of uh, uh set design and uh and prop design there with the whole like it is intricate it's so tactile right yes. physical of course, an essential part of the self-destruct system is to turn on fog machines and strobe lights throughout the entire <laughs> ship. <laughs> oh, yeah. But she's she's not just flipping switches and, you know, she's actually moving things and pushing things and, yeah, just pulling things out of the ground. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, there's a lot of disco lights to turn on. But yeah. then, but but then, what what what's great is she finds out. Uh, oh, you know, here's they're dead. The alien is here. I love that she goes back to try and turn off the self destruct, and you get the ticket. So you don't just get the countdown to destruction; you get the countdown to when it's irrevocable that it's going to be destroyed. And she fails. She does. She doesn't get it. So at that point, she's like, "I guess I got to get my cat and get out of here." I just I, I love that that we get two countdowns there, and we get the the like, okay, Plan A, and then Plan A doesn't work and she's like all right i guess i'll go turn it off oh that didn't work either now i'll go i, just, I love how going legitimately down. pissed off she is at that moment too oh, yeah. <laughs> she smashes yeah. mother's monitor and then the whole way back down the hall towards the cat she is screaming and shouting obscenities it's oh, fantastic I, I love that she takes care of the cat during all of this many a lesser hero yep. would have just left the poor thing to die but no no she knows priorities cat fluffy I love the cat throughout. I love the cat. I, I have this in, in my notes. I wanted to mention it. We brought up the cat a few times. I love the cat. I love the first time we see the cat where it's like, there's this bright orange cat on this spaceship. It's like, <laughs> whoa, what is this movie? Like, like I, I could accept aliens bursting out of people's chests, but people just kind of have a cat on the spaceship. It's great and strange. Oh. And then they use the cat for scares. And then she saves the cat. I love everything about having the cat in there. The cat is a metaphor for Ripley's humanity. The cat is Ripley's weakness, and if she would have let it die, she'd have a much better time in the next two movies. Yeah. <laughs> and Liz, she does leave it in harm's way. If you watch the director's yep. cut, the director's cut has the scene where the alien finds the cat and like bats it aside because it's not right. interested. Which, thank it, God, they cut out because, to me, the that key would be to terrible. that scene yeah, yeah. Where, where you just see the alien creeping up on the cat and then it cuts away before you see it knock it away is... I originally was sure that the cat had been implanted with an alien yeah. in some way. Right, that, right, yeah. <laughs> and that that was going to be the, the false ending at the end was going to be the cat, you know, looking creepy or maybe having something burst out of its chest. Or the no! sequel, Alien 2, Cat Attack. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> By the way, where does the cat sleep initially? Is there a little kitty uh, cryogenic little, pod? Yes. Oh, I hope so. That, that's that's yeah. head cannon. It must be in somebody's pod. Somebody gets Cat to... Yeah. I think there's a little uh, kitty yeah. sleep pod. A little yeah. kitty pod. Okay. <laughs> yep. Kitty pod. That's good. Everybody gets one ship cat. 
That's that's to cut. You know why it's there? It's standard. It's to kill. It's to kill all the rats that are on that ship. You could have to be. You could have a and ship parrot or a ship dog. It it doesn't have to be a cat. Any animal, I'm sure they'd let. I don't know. Board. I think they have a rodent dog scares on the Nostromo, and they need a cat to just to kill the to kill the rats on the Nostromo. But space, space rats. rats. They're the rats. worst. Space that's rat. the other. That's the other fantastic reversal in the movie when they first go hunting for the alien. You think that they're still looking for something about the size of a rat. Yeah. Because up until yeah. that point, all you've seen is the chestburster, and they think that obviously that is, that is the most groan worthy scene in the movie, where there's like the little puppet that they drags across the floor yeah. Yeah. on string. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's that, not the best. That, that just ruined the whole chestburster scene for me the very first time I saw it because that was also explained. There's this ridiculous little thing running across the screen before it happened. So then we could all laugh at it, and I was like, okay, that's great. That's great. So having Thanks. seen it in the theater in 1979, I can tell you that that scene was actually surprisingly effective. All right. And it was specifically because everybody lost their stuff when the <laughs> alien popped out. <laughs> right. And right. then when it zips across the table in that ridiculous fashion, it's comic relief. Everybody uh, laughed. Interesting. Oh. And it wasn't oh, like re- that that looks ridiculous. It was like, yeah. a, oh my God, that was hilarious. And then I assume the uh, chestburster had to go eat five tons of food to grow into a giant monster. Yeah, yeah. they don't really it explain had people that. people to eat, probably. <laughs> there was all those dead people. It'd be how fine. Did, be how like, did it eat the first one? It it just it ate John Hurt from the inside out. We just didn't it see found that very well. The food stores, yeah, and it ate John okay. Hurt. Or, what Jane or, on, or, or John that, Hurt ate. that acid is for so it can eat metal. So it was having a little nibble oh, of the ship. Ooh, it too right. was eating uh, ship rats. That's <laughs> why Jones was, was chasing yeah. after it. They were actually hunting together initially. I wanted to put out a word oh. for that for that scene too, because that's one of my very favorite scenes that sticks with me from this movie. Is when the acid burns through the decks, and they yeah, and they yeah. check how far mm. down the acid goes, and and they like put the like little little prod or pencil or Give whatever your it pen. is, and 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 it and it uh, and it smokes on the tip because of this acid, and it's like I love that. That's so yeah. creepy. Like it's oh, it's acid. How bad is it? Well, yeah. how far down did it? burn all the way down it's very bad i love that because they don't even do anything with it in this movie it's just no oh just so you know you can't <laughs> cut into it because it's made of acid well they do because that's that's why they can't remove the face hugger off of kane well, well yeah, yeah but that that's just one moment they could have found another reason for that but they, they don't expand on that until the next movie when it starts mattering a lot it, it does also serve that scene, however, to emphasize the size of the ship. Yes. Because, oh, yeah. you know, like a Doctor Who episode, they are using the same corridor again and again and again <laughs> with different uh, dressing. I feel I should point out at this moment that these corridors that we see here were in fact later used in a Doctor Who story. Really? <laughs> of course <laughs> they were. <laughs> yeah. what, what? What? No, I want to know this Doctor Who trivia now, Liz, please. Uh, P- P- Peter Davison's story, Terminus, uses alien sets. Wow. Oh, wow. If it was a Peter Davison one, then I've seen that. <laughs> I think the corridors look exactly like the line to Space Mountain. They've got that same white oh, puppy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that Which works. came first? Which Space Mountain? The one the in Disneyland one. in 1979, <laughs> strangely enough. That's what the yeah. future looks like to me is Tomorrowland of 1979. Yep. I think my favorite thing about that acid scene is when uh, Dallas hands the pen that he borrowed from Brett yeah, back yeah. to him, and he's looking at this, this pen that's smoking and dripping and going, like, you wrecked my pen, dude. <laughs> 
He looks so. Yeah. He looks just irritated. Yeah. And he's already concerned about his bonus because pens are very expensive. It's in the not future. like he can go to the pen shop. He's in deep space. But he's probably only got the one pen. Yeah. How many pens? They can't run out to the to the staples to buy more pens. And you got to get one of those fancy space pens. Eric, I think technically all pens are space pens when they're in space. <laughs> <laughs> it's like how money becomes space money, and all everything else becomes space. But if they whatever. don't work when that's they're true. in space, are they still a pen? That's uh, true. Ooh. It makes you think. Mm-hmm. Actually, talking about space technology, one of the things that always always bugged me about this was uh, a how easily they design the motion trackers. Like that really is just kind of hand wavy them, just skip right over that. Mm-hmm. Um, but not only that, but then somehow at some point, like in between Dallas's death and the rest of the movie, the motion trackers suddenly get massively upgraded from. <laughs> We're going to buzz when something moves to, oh, now we've got a grid with dots that show positions and it beeps. And uh, there's no explanation for that at all. They have to up the tension. Well, sure. But like, there's, why not start with them like that to start with? You know, it's, right. it's nuts. Oh, I can't think of any good headcanon to explain that. That's annoying. <laughs> I, oh, I can. It's uh, they, the uh, mother linked all of the motion sensors on the ship together yeah. and then they were tied into that. At the end, mother did it. It's like a wizard did mother, it, but with a computer. Mother, yeah, mother did it. Mother, mother's not very helpful, though. That Blame it on mother. We don't. Yeah, you know how powerful story, that though. machine is because she's got so many lights, and yeah. <laughs> even though the monitor is about thirteen inches across, you still have to sit about ten feet away from it in order to use it. It's just that powerful, and you have to get in a chair that revolves rather than just stepping into a chair that's facing her to start with. I'd never understood that. <laughs> the better to appreciate the 360-degree light show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks great. But, yeah. So the, the last scene, so, so she gets on the, she goes back, she does the double back, she and the, and the cat get on the shuttle, and this is where we get that second ending, right? The false ending. The Nostromo has exploded. She's going to, oh, it's all over. Whew, that was the a close Nostromo one. The Nostromo explodes three times, well, no less. It's space. <laughs> it's got different parts that explode slightly different times, I guess. Explode surprisingly loudly, considering that it's in space. In space, people right, can hear yeah. you explode. They just no, can't hear you no scream. No one can hear you scream, but you can hear every other sound. Yeah. I don't normally Apparently. object to that, but if you make it your tagline, I feel it's worth mentioning. <laughs> um, and the last explosion has like the 2001 slit scan effect. Yes, of course. Very strange. We're done. We're done. She's safe. It's all okay. Freddy's dead. I should. I want to point out that the false ending here is unfortunately probably the one thing that I don't think works very well. Because <laughs> there's no doubt as she's leisurely taking off her clothes and getting prepared for her long space journey that something else is yeah, coming. It's, it's, yeah, it seems a weird way to end the movie with. And then she took <laughs> yep. off her clothes and went in a pod. The end. <laughs> hey, when I was 11 years old, I totally bought oh, it. Right. I got a shock. Yeah, when I was when I first saw this, I remember thinking that this scene, the revelation that the alien was, you know, hiding in plain sight, was the most awesome thing I had ever seen in my life. Just absolutely incredible, blew my mind. I loved it to bits. Now I watch it and I think, how would there be a b- gap big enough for him to fit in? But at the time, <laughs> at the time, I loved it. Well, and in such convenient proximity to all those fog machines that can be used to flush <laughs> yeah. it out. I love that scene, but but to Steve's point, my feeling is something has to be... It doesn't feel like the the end of the movie, right? It doesn't feel like... Uh, what what to fake me out you need to make it feel like the credits are going to roll at any moment and then they don't and that didn't happen here where it's like boy it seems like we're waiting around a long time i guess something else is going to happen <laughs> even in 79 the the fake ending was a trope i mean carrie was 1976 and that was right. done better than this 
And they could very, I think they feel like they could very easily have made this work a little better by having her sit down and do her final transmission that she, that they save for the end of the movie, have her start that Uh, because then you've got a reason for her to be still on the ship. But, Rather than know. flash her panties, yeah. Which is ca- <laughs> not that I'm complaining so, about that necessarily. Well, but <laughs> I mean, you know, Sigourney Weaver's a lovely woman, but it is that's a real shame for me because that is kind of the only thing that really sort of spoils and dates the movie for me is right. mm-hmm. just the completely gratuitous yep. underwear shots. Yeah, especially in comparison <laughs> to the style of the underwear that all of the dudes are wearing. Right. I mean, yeah. it's very like just workman, like just white underwear. And the, I love the fact that the <laughs> characters were all written so that they could easily be gender swapped. And that comes across in the script very well. All the characters just relate to each other as people. And yet the costuming is so vastly different. It doesn't <laughs> seem like they would have uh, that different of underclothes for for each person when it comes to the women there was a huge fabric shortage because it's the future and well that's what we had to do kane seems like the kind of guy who would be wearing boring underwear though possibly the, the one thing i do love about the fact that uh i mean there are many things i love but one thing i really love th- about the fact that ripley is the one who survives is that she is the only member of the crew who tries to outsmart the alien rather than take it on toe to toe like everyone well i mean lambert just tries to you know escape and run but all of the men try and take it on they're like i'm gonna kill that thing we can take it out let's flush it out the airlock i'll kill it with a flamethrower whatever and of course all completely fail she's the only one who tries to outthink it and think how can we how can we escape how can we get away from it rather than trying to actually kill it yeah, it is a little weird that she strips down there, although there is sort of a point to it, which is to make her even more vulnerable. I'm not sure it's necessary because she's already so underpowered compared to the alien. They've already shown that even somebody armed with a flamethrower is vulnerable, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of like those thoughts you have sometimes when you go in and you use the restroom and you're like, this would be a really bad place for a serial killer to pop up. <laughs> Yeah, because I think that all the time. <laughs> You've never had that thought? <laughs> well, I will now. You don't go to the same rest stops as Steve. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I don't watch slasher movies, because that's what would happen every day. And you like- know, I would not have had a problem with her in her underwear if it would have been more like, you know, just a, a, a T-shirt or a wife beater top and some, you know, like boy shorts or something like yeah. that. Because, I mean, those little bikini underwear, I wore an underwear like that. And you know, they can be comfortable enough, but underneath you know work suits and space suits and all that kind of stuff i feel like probably not the most uh, appropriate choice yeah. a one-piece jumpsuit probably made out of polyester yeah i mean honestly if she had been wearing something that was pretty much exactly the same as what john hurt was wearing only just tailored for her slightly curvier form i think it would have been every bit as sexy and would have made a lot more sense personally i would have advised against the use of chuck taylor's as work boots which we do see her wearing as well <laughs> yeah. so i, I think she's more tops. of a style over substance yeah, kind maybe of person some steel toes i think it's interesting that sigourney was cast as this character because you kind of want her to be vulnerable, and she is vulnerable, but Sigourney's pretty tall. Like, even when she's hanging around with the cast, you can tell she's taller than a lot of the guys. Yeah. Well, Veronica Cartwright was originally going to play Ripley. Yeah. And she would fit that. She's much more sort of physically more, you know, l- less imposing and more vulnerable. Yeah. 
Oh, well, I mean, I'm I'm glad she's she's not. I'm I'm glad I'm glad we forgot it there because I think that's that's something that when I notice when I notice that they've cast a tall woman and they're not afraid to show how tall that woman actually is. I saw it mm. a lot in oh gosh, it's the Noah Wiles, the librarians. They've cast uh, Rebecca Ramesian as is the the lead in that, and she's very tall. And they don't try to disguise the fact she's much taller than the men. And uh, and I love that here as well because it's it's just it's just one of those things that television does all the time. So you get this idea that women are small and yeah. therefore physically weaker, physically inferior. So when we get a woman who is actually tall and powerful, you know that's that's an important symbol, at least to me. Mm-hmm. I also think it would be a shame if Veronica Cartwright was not playing Lambert because she is magnificent. Yeah. I know she was not a fan of how I guess she characterized the character as emotionally weak, but I think she is perfect because she is the only one of the crew who is acting in a realistic fashion to the situation <laughs> they're in. Right, yeah. right. Just completely wigging out. And she's magnificent at it. I mean, she's she's she, like snots running out of her nose. And she's, <laughs> yeah, and she's not wrong. <laughs> she has the most extreme reaction to the uh, chestburster as well. And that's one of the case. She was one of the people who had no idea who didn't know that it was going to be as bloody as all that right what extreme they were going to go to and so her reaction when she sort of freaks out and you know is just like waving her hands around having hysterics that's genuine that really is a kind of an an unscripted reaction cartwright's (laughs) comments about the role i I think i'm very sympathetic to because i mean it is a it's a fair point in a movie i like this how many times is it a, a horror movie where the person who's freaking out the most, who's the one who is crying and shrieking with the snorting or whatever, if it's going to be realistic, how many times is that a guy and how many times is it a woman? And it's overwhelmingly, it's going to be a woman. Can I direct you to Aliens where it is a guy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, but, but you have to admit that's in the minority. <laughs> I meant generally speaking. Sure. But on the other hand, I really, I do love her performance and I love her character. And uh, as you said, she's the one who's to me most identifiable for the for the audience because yep, or yep. for me because that is how i would act in that situation so she's also you know she's the audience identifier so it's it's one of those things where i can totally understand where the criticism is coming from whilst also i'm more on the fence about it because i really i really like her right well, she's she is, if not put in this situation, she also is a tough person. I mean, you can sort of sense it from her yeah. sort of smart-ass comments about how, oh, great, we're going to go on the planet, and uh, the, it's not our system, and she's I know that. sort of under her breath, yeah. I know that. <laughs> and there's there's actually, I think, a deleted scene that, I, that shows up in the director's cut that I think they would have been well-served to keep in, where um, when when Ripley comes down to see how Kane is doing after they finally let him into the ship, she comes up to Ripley and smacks her hard and, and they're ready to fight. Oh I mean, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a really good fight scene. I mean, it's, it's visceral. It looks like she is genuinely pissed and you get a sense of how tough her character actually is from that. So that's one of the few where I think maybe they would have, they would have been well served to keep that in. Although there again, I mean, that scene has a bit of complexity because yes, strong character, but why is she slapping Ripley? Because Ripley didn't want to let Kane back inside the ship. So it's kind of strength because of empathy and weakness. So, well, you know, well, again, I'm not sure know. you necessarily want to tie empathy and weakness together. Well, but, okay. but you know, <laughs> if, if we're just talking sort of in terms of pure character stuff, I just think it's 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 good. It makes for a more complex character, which right. she is. And it would be very easy for her to have just been the scream queen of the movie. And I think, yeah, she clearly does much more than that in the role. 
her reaction to that empathy is not to, you know, stew and, and make little sidelong comments. She smacks Ripley right. hard. <laughs> it's to confront She's her. ready to kill her. Uh, it's so good, this movie. I just, I love it so much. So, so many things about it. I haven't even covered half of my notes, but. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, this is your chance. This is the, uh, we, you know, she. Bring out your dad. She, so she, yeah, well, I mean, I can tell you what happens at the end, which is she f- basically fires a grappling hook at the thing and and blows it out the door but oh no it's still not the end because it it, it, <laughs> it it sticks in the in like the doorway so then she has to turn on the engines and like set it it's the biggest flamethrower she's got left and uh that's the last moment that she uh she has with the alien and then she can uh uh, just uh, go with the cat into the stasis pod, and that's the actual end of the movie. And she'll reach the frontier in six weeks. Yeah, uh, yo, yeah, it's gonna be fine. Everything <laughs> with, luck. with luck, gonna be gonna fine. Be I like that they don't milk that second false ending. It's not like, oh no, the alien is floating in space and it's gonna claw mm-hmm. its way into the ship. No, seconds later she realizes <laughs> yeah. engine yeah. smack. I actually kind of wish that they didn't have. I mean, the voiceover at the end is good. It's fine. You know, it's not sort of an offensive voiceover like Blade Runner or something. But uh, <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I disagree with you. <laughs> but I almost wish that they didn't do it because that's the only dialogue for like the last 10 minutes of the movie. And the movie starts with almost 10 minutes of complete, like, not silence, but no dialogue. It's uh, almost seven minutes into the movie before anybody speaks. At all, like any human sounds at all. And it's longer than that at the end of the movie or would be if she didn't, you know, do the captain's log thing. So it's just kind of a shame that there isn't that symmetry, I think. But it is, you know, it is still a good speech. I, I, I kind of feel like I, I need that at the end because I, I need some, I need a good, I, you know, be, be as subtle as you like all through the movie. No anvils. You don't have to do that. But give me an anvilicious conclusion. Okay, slap that anvil down there and give me a sense of closure. <laughs> That's what I need. So for 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 me, that was that was something cool. I actually like Steve's idea that she that she says the she she files her report at the beginning and then discovers that the alien is there. And then at the end, after she's killed the alien, maybe she just presses the send button. <laughs> like done. Let's go. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it, but if if you're thinking in terms of symmetry, maybe you can forgive that false ending for being because it's just her being silent in the ship. Briefly, she talks to the cat, but otherwise she's just cruising around. So that is sort of similar to the, the beginning of the film. I guess. In that respect. I, I think it's the time where I ask, uh, anybody have anything we haven't covered that uh, that you'd like to mention? Uh, there, was, there was one thing that I just wanted to say about the, uh, the first kill scene, because we were talking about pacing earlier. Um, that scene takes minutes, minutes and minutes of screen time uh, leading up to, you know, when Brett's looking for the cat. Well, it starts with like the three of them looking for the cat and then they send Brett off by himself. And you get, if you listen to, I mean, it's really well directed and well staged. It takes ages. There are so many false, uh, you know, sort of false beats where you think this is where he's going to die, but he doesn't, you know, and then this is where he's going to die and he doesn't. Um, But if you listen to the sound design of that, it's amazing. They combine all these mechanical sounds one minute it sounds like like air conditioning or sort of womp, womp, womp fans. Another minute it sort of suddenly sounds like a heartbeat pounding, uh, and then it'll become something else. Yes, and- I wanted to mention that as well. That's whenever there's a kill scene, they're almost always in a section of the ship where they're close to what I assume is some piece of the engine equipment, because there's that thrum that sounds for all yeah. the world like a like a heartbeat when it's muffled, mm-hmm. and it it happens for I think every single kill scene. There may be one or two that are, that are different, but I don't know who did the sound design, um, but whoever did, you know, should have won an award as well because it, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's extraordinary throughout the whole movie, but. 
that particular scene really stands out to me because there is no dialogue because it is just Brett walking through areas of the ship uh, on his own going here kitty kitty and you know and that's it and so all you've got and there's no music either it's all just sound design not music so yeah go back and, and watch that again and really pay attention to what you're listening to and it really kind of plays with you and directs your emotions and the anticipation you have because you know that that's where he's going to cark it you know you know this is the moment he's going to die and it really plays with your expectations well the sound team won uh the bafta for best yes. sound Oh, did they? Oh, excellent. So excellent. they're Yay. an award. So we, we Brits appreciated them. <laughs> yes. I was going to mention that because that is great. And I was also going to mention the Goldsmith score, which I really love. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. interesting that he composed an entirely, almost entirely yes. separate score that was mostly more traditional, almost 2001-esque uh, classical music. And um, Ridley Scott, I guess, chopped it all to hell and replaced a bunch of it with stuff from previous scores that he'd done. And uh, and I think it's great. I love the the sort of eeriness, particularly in the opening when the letters are appearing on the screen, and it's just like yeah. that sort of feedback almost more than an actual score. Yeah, that whole opening sequence is so iconic, you know, and it's to the point where it's one of those things that hasn't been copied and wasn't influential because it's so distinct and so iconic. You can't do it without everybody going, "Oh, it's Alien." It's so recognizable. It's a, I love it. It's so well done. Uh, I wanted to recommend a couple other movies to show where Alien came from. In 1974, John Carpenter directed his first feature-length film, Dark Star, which is fun. It, it's super, <laughs> super cheap. And the important part is that it's basically three different stories, and one of them is Alien, but done worse because... Ridley Scott is better at visuals. And the screenplay was by Dan O'Bannon. And after Dark Star came out, crazy visionary director Alejandro Jodorowsky, whose name I'm probably not pronouncing correctly, Close was going enough. to yeah, he was going to make a movie of Dune. Oh, yeah. I watched the documentary thing immediately yes. with, mm-hmm. with him. He was different. Yeah. <laughs> the, so the other movie I'm recommending is the movie Jodorowsky's Dune. <laughs> Which explains the movie he would have made, which was crazy. It would have been 18 yes! hours long and have <laughs> be full of space sperm and all sorts of things. I recommend Jodorowsky's Holy Mountain if you want an idea oh. of what it might have looked like. Yeah. Uh, I like Jodorowsky much more after watching Jodorowsky's Dune because he seems so normal in it. And after just watching his movies, I thought, this is a crazy man. He is a crazy man. <laughs> Absolutely. But he's relatively friendly. Yeah. He's- He's quite nice, I thought. It's just like, I don't want to watch your movie. It sounds <laughs> terrifying and Terrible. weird. Have you read any of his graphic novels? He is a crazy, crazy man. Yeah. <laughs> for Dune, he put together a team that was Dan O'Bannon to do the special effects. And for visual concepts, Mobius and H.R. Giger. Sure. Yep. And when his movie fell apart, some of them went off and kind of coalesced towards Alien. And that's why you have a Dan O'Bannon story and H.R. Giger designs, oh. some of which had been originally made for Dune. If you are familiar with Alien and Dune, you may wonder where those images would have shown up. The yes. answer is everywhere. <laughs> I'm really glad that they went with Geiger rather than Mobius, though, because I love Mobius. You know, uh, I love him as an uh, as an artist and as a graphic novelist. But uh, an alien designed by Mobius rather than uh, Geiger would have been so, so different. And I'm just not sure it would have had the same impact that this movie did. I feel like you needed... 
someone crazy like Yodorowsky to look at Giger and say, you should work on movies <laughs> and then get him far enough into the system so that Ridley Scott could say, yeah, we can work on that. You're going to have to redo a lot of these to make them less explicit. <laughs> Including the painting that actually influenced the alien design itself, yeah. which is just is the alien. You look at it and it's like, well, okay, if we just remove the giant penis, this is the alien. <laughs> You know, there's a whole lot of elements of violation in this. Obviously, the implantation by the embryo. There's the very phallic scene of Ash trying to choke uh, Ripley yep. with a newspaper, which happens right in front of a bunch of nudie pics that are pasted to the wall. True. I mean, they aren't they aren't really shy about the sexual. Well, I think the magazine itself that he rolls up might be a nudie mag. Probably, mm -hmm. yeah. quite likely. Yeah. We didn't really talk about it, but Giger's design is such an essential part of yeah. the whole movie. Yeah, you can't get yeah. Giger without yeah. getting penises. Yeah. And <laughs> Whatnot. Right, but you wouldn't have, uh, that's what I was saying, you wouldn't have Alien, I don't think, without Geiger's designs, because I just don't think anybody, I don't think any other design would have been so radical. Like, you know, it's hard to think now, but in 1979, this was a radical design oh, yeah. for a for a sci-fi alien creature. Uh, and I don't think any other conceptual artist working at that time would have come up with something quite so innovative unusual and simultaneously horrifying and disturbing mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's gross stuff i wanted to mention um you mentioned uh uh the jerry goldsmith score and i would just mention mm -hmm. this is the same year that he did the star trek the motion picture score that's <laughs> like wow, wow. Which is great. There's, a lot, there's a lot going on there he also scored outland which i wanted to mention because it's got a similar vibe to it it's high noon oh, in I space love outland. yeah but yeah. uh that's uh that's peter hyams uh, directed it and sean connery's in that it, it literally is high noon except it, on saturn moons of saturn it's it's uh the mining colony yeah, yeah it's it's uh it's really good and weird but it, it has a similar vibe to this except of course there the uh the monsters are us because that's <gasps> what well, spoilers for outland jason the monsters are us in this too that's the whole reason they get sent down to that planet i suppose that's true you're right steve good point. corporate masters yeah a couple of quick notes i wanted to get to i love the fact that what they're flying in is a commercial towing vehicle because it really adds to the whole, this is a really unglamorous group of people <laughs> aspect of things. Yeah. Well, and the design of it, again, is so, is like, it's not streamlined in any no, way. No, it's utilitarian. It's really sort of, yeah, unaerodynamic, industrial, bulky and workmanlike. There's no, there's no pomposity in this movie. I think that's what separates it from a lot of sci-fi that came before, is right. there's no yes. campness or pomposity about it. Uh, I really like the scene where there's there's a there's a setup scene where uh, Parker and Brett are down in the bowels of the ship and they're complaining about their bonuses and they keep saying why do they never come down here, and then later when Ripley decides she's going to come down to expect the damage from inspect the damage from the landing, they say what the hell is she coming down here for? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Don't worry, Brett. You'll get whatever's coming to you. <laughs> That's right. Mm -hmm. And he does. Um, I love the set design on the maintenance areas that Brett goes through. We might have talked about that already, but I like the fact that they have indoor rain. And for no apparent reason... Mm -hmm. It's from the coolant systems, yeah. yeah. It's, it's they, just they it's condensation. <laughs> but he takes, he takes a moment to take off his hat and enjoy the indoor rain <laughs> before he sets off to find the cat. Which is probably his own recycled sweat. <laughs> Ridley Scott early on said, I like fog and rain, we're going to put it yes. everywhere. <laughs> and I like chains banging into each other. Well, he needs some chains hanging from the ceiling for some reason. Um, I love the lighting design in Dallas's traipsing through the ducts scene how he's just got this tiny little cone of light that follows him around and the way it reflects off of the uh, the doors that sort of um, 
Oh, those grinding metal irises. Yeah. Oh, they're fantastic. And uh, and to add to that, the lighting in the scene where the alien does catch up to him, and it looks like he's reaching for him to give him a real big hug. <laughs> but it speaks to what I think was the genius of this, which is uh, they wanted to reveal as little of the alien as possible until they absolutely had to show more of it. All right. Well, this has been uh, this has been good. Good, good. I'm glad we got to talk about this movie. I hope everybody uh, got through it without being too scared. My daughter didn't. She got too scared. Aww. But it's a classic. We'll have to come back and talk about that Aliens movie someday. It's a very different movie on all yes, How many runs. years before that happened? <laughs> Three or four. I don't know. I don't know. Well, it was Three seven years between the movies. Yeah, so. there you go. <laughs> I'm not going to promise an episode number for the Aliens because then somebody will no, notice no, and then and they'll get back to me. By the way, I'm going to choose the uh, Siberian Husky in the dog draft. Anyway. Canine. Dibs on canine. <laughs> Prometheus 2 is coming. Maybe you can con me into going and oh. seeing that by claiming oh, boy. we're going to do the rest of the Alien oh, movies. Boy. If there's ever an Alien 3 podcast, I just want to say I am totally up for that because I know that will be very popular, but Charles dances in that movie. So. Mm. There you go. There's a dog you can draw. This is the 30th anniversary of Aliens. Maybe we should rush it and do it right away. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to leave that as a cliffhanger and I'm going to thank my guests. I'll say that for 40. <laughs> so uh, check that out. Uh, Liz Miles, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Steve Lutz, thank you. We ain't out of here in 10 minutes, Jason. We won't need no rocket to fly mm. through space. Monty, in space, no one can hear you scream. Ah! I'm sorry. I saw a picture of a cat on the internet. Oh, okay. ah! <laughs> Just mention of it scares me. Uh, Erica Ensign, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. You guys, you are all my lucky stars. Aww. And Anthony Johnson, lucky, I hope lucky. it was a good experience for you it, and maybe worth the wait. Oh, don't worry, Jason. You'll get whatever's coming to you. <laughs> And with that, I'm going to file my log and drift into hopefully a transit sector uh, sometime in the next few months. But we'll, we'll see. But if, if you receive this message, you know our position and our coordinates. And uh, hopefully you'll hear us again next time. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.